Today on Inland Journal and the Inland Journal podcast, two stories about new initiatives at Spokane's medical schools. Later, we'll have the second part of a report about Washington State University working with two other West Coast medical schools to attract Native American students. We'll learn how they plan to do it, and we'll talk with one Native medical student in Spokane. But first, we'll open with a story about teaching the next generation of doctors how to become leaders. It's told by Rochelle Strother, the Director of Leadership Training and Development at the Gonzaga School of Leadership Studies. One of my parents was in the ER, had a bad fall. And so I, I got there, I rushed over there, and of course uh, people were attending to uh, my mom. And I remember at one point uh, the doctor had come in the room, didn't really say much to anyone in the room, was very perfunctory, kind of doing almost like a checklist and asking some questions of the nurses. And then the, do- the doctor turned on his heel and began to leave. And one of the nurses said, doctor, doctor, and she was clearly trying to ask him a question. And I don't know what happened if he didn't hear her or if he just ignored her, but he just kept walking straight out. And I'll never forget her face at the door because she turned around and she just rolled her eyes, you know, very subtly, but you could tell that this was something that had happened before. Stories like this are not unusual. They point to issues like poor communication between doctors and other health professionals and patients. As you know, a family of the patient, we saw that interaction. And I wonder, you know, is that a systemic issue where maybe nurses feel like they're not being heard? Or does that doctor have some stuff he's got to work on? Is, is there a hearing issue that needs to be addressed? But those are the kinds of interactions that happen every day in healthcare, whether or not we see it. Strother is now in a place where she can do something about that problem. Her school is now working with the University of Washington School of Medicine to offer leadership training to medical students. Strother is the instructor. And our goal is to prepare students so that that they're able to to respond to those challenges. They're self-aware enough to notice, am I listening to people? Am I taking in other voices? Um, Am I being as compassionate in this moment as I could be? Strother's partner in this endeavor is Dr. Daryl Podick. He's a geriatric medicine doctor in Spokane, also the associate dean for Eastern Washington for the UW Medical School and the chief of medical education for the UW-GU Regional Health Partnership. He says though doctors are often seen as leaders in their health care settings and communities, they often have to learn those skills through trial and error. So traditionally they have not been taught about leadership at all, and it's been something that we have recognized more and more. We hear from our community partners uh, when we work in the the clinical setting that doctors don't have the leadership skills necessary for the roles that they're foisted into. Um, And that's been recognized more and more by clinical health systems, but even more so recently there's been a call from big organizations, from the Institute of Medicine, from the accrediting body for residency programs uh, and others who really have said leadership skills need to be part of medical school training. So the University of Washington created what it calls a leadership pathway for its students in Spokane, drawing upon the leadership of Gonzaga's program. So what is it that's lacking in terms of leadership among doctors? Uh, I think doctors are uh, oftentimes in the old school way trained to be just on their own. And so what's lacking is how to influence teams, how to work together in a team, how to lead the team, how to build consensus, but then also that conflict resolution that we oftentimes, in the old school way of thinking, haven't been taught to do in a constructive manner. The students in the program learn leadership skills in part through exercises that require them to think through real-life scenarios. 
they're walking into a clinic and, and suddenly they are the clinical leader and they have to form a team and they have to gather people around the mission. Um, that they're walking in with this toolkit that they can pull from and say, okay, I can look back on my time in the leadership pathway and think of this particular skill that I was taught or this particular theory that's going to help me get through these tough situations. And what we're talking about here with the pathway is an intensive longitudinal four-year experience. This is in the pilot stage right now, so out of our 60 students, we opened it up to, four, to 15 students, and I think we had 25 apply, uh, which was uh, one in the same time. It was heartening, but disheartening, because we had to turn some away. We're careful that it is an add-on. They're already drinking from a fire hose, and we need to make be cognizant of their time and everything else that they're learning, but also recognizing that when they go out into the world, people are going to see them as leaders whether they like it or not. Podic and Strother say the program reaches out into the community to find health care leaders who share their stories and life lessons. Sometimes the lesson is that the doctor needs to step out of the way and let someone else on the team, maybe a nurse, be the leader. The physician doesn't always have to be the top person, and that is why Rochelle mentioned that in the case studies, we have people who aren't physicians come in and share their stories, and some of our mentors are not physicians. They're hospital executives, um, and people who have an, a leadership role and came at this in different ways. And I think it really all comes down to having the humility to say, I can learn from others, and I want to learn from others. Learning how to be a good follower, you know, what's called followership, and knowing that there are times when, yes, you need to step up, and yes, you need to uh, facilitate uh, the process, but other times, uh, even when you're in a formal leadership role where you should be stepping back and allowing others to have a voice and empowering them to make decisions. And I, I think the fact that we're talking about this, about even getting the med students to think about the fact that they may be the highest position in a team, and yet there may be a nurse who has 20 years' experience who really should should be deferred to. These are, this is why we're having these conversations. The UW-Gonzaga program is in its first year. As it's refined, the UW School of Medicine also hopes to provide leadership training to the other students in its five-state coverage region using technology to disseminate the lessons provided by Gonzaga. Last week, we told you about an effort to get more Native American students to consider careers as medical doctors. A very small percentage of the doctors in the U.S. are Native, and the pipeline is generally empty. WSU's College of Medicine says out of nearly 22,000 medical students in the U.S., 44 are Native. One of them is Grace McPhail. She's a first-year WSU medical student from Long Beach, Washington. I grew up on a cranberry farm um, with my parents. My grandparents are cranberry farmers as well. She went to California for college, Santa Clara University, and she graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Public Health. Um, I was sort of sure at that point that I wanted to do medicine, but all the nitty-gritty science details didn't always appeal to me. <laughs> um, so the social health aspect and population health really did. After McPhail graduated, she moved to San Diego, and she worked for a company that makes insulin pumps for diabetics. She was a customer service representative. She soon learned that didn't satisfy her desire to help people, so she decided to continue on to medical school. Now, there's one important detail we haven't mentioned. Grace McPhail didn't learn she has Native heritage until she was in high school. I am a member of the Chickasaw Nation um, from Oklahoma. Um, on my mom's side. Since then, it's just spurred, like, a, I guess, a change in, in the way um, 
I approach my history and um, when I was at Santa Clara I worked with two other um, Native students to form the first um, Native student organization that the campus had ever had um, which was really really neat. We were a small group and we tried so hard to do so many things um, they actually just put on their first powwow last year which was the first in Santa Clara's history. After college she took a couple of years off to decide her career path. She went to Mexico. I did um, an internship there um, in an emergency medicine setting, and I was like, yes, I love this. This is something I can do for the rest of my life. So she applied for medical school and was accepted into two. One was the University of North Dakota, which has a long-established program to train Native students to become doctors. The other was WSU. Tough decision, she says, but she chose to stay closer to home, still with an eye toward learning more about how to care for Native American people. Well, Native Americans experience these adverse health outcomes at significantly higher rates. Um, the rates of diabetes are much higher, substance use and abuse, mental health disorders, all of that. Um, and I don't think, as a Native person, that I could just ignore that. I think that that would need to be a part of the way I practice and I need to treat the population that I come from, um, especially with these high, high rates. Um, and we lack those health services and we need them. Naomi Bender says Grace McPhail is one of three WSU medical students who are Native American. Bender is the director of Native American Health Sciences at WSU Spokane. What our office in particular is trying to do is make sure that we're reaching out with each of the students and finding out how not just that their, their academics are going, but really how are they doing personally, how are they doing culturally, what are some ways in which our office can help them. Our office has helped support a new Native American student club, of which Grace is, is president of. And we have students from each of our colleges in pharmacy and pharmaceutical sciences and nursing, um, speech and hearing, and nutrition, diet, and exercise, all part of this group to create a cohort of students who um, wouldn't, not, wouldn't otherwise have one another to, to glean on one another in terms of that cultural piece and that familial piece in which they're really used to having and they've walked away from. Bender says that support system will allow Native Americans to help each other get through rigorous academic programs while allowing them to stay attached to their Native identity and customs. Bender's working with the College of Medicine to develop programs funded by two new grants. One pairs WSU with two other Western medical schools to better prepare and recruit Native students into medical careers. The partners are Oregon's Medical School, Oregon Health and Science University, and the University of California Davis School of Medicine, also the Northwest Portland Area Indian Health Board. We told you about that grant during last week's Inland Journal. We also help support um, Native American events um, with another grant that we'll be receiving from the Empire Health Foundation this week. We will be able to build a Native American Student Support Center, and we are just now in the process of getting that space, and our students will hopefully have those services um, starting this fall. The services will include advising, mentoring, um, cultural events and meals on a weekly basis, access to Native American faculty um, in each of the colleges, and in particular, um, just that, that overall support that we talk about. This coming weekend we're taking our students snowshoeing, um, uh, our Native students snowshoeing and getting them out in nature and getting them back into the place where we truly um, feel at peace um, with our earth and giving them opportunities to, to really express themselves and spend time together I think is important. 
Bender says WSU works to give students, not just Native students, opportunities to work in Native health care settings. We recently had a student down at, at Coeur d'Alene at Miriam. Um, we work closely with those entities to help make sure that student is prepared, having a better understanding of that tribal community, how the clinic is ran, um, and really orientate them to the system and to the patients and people they'll serve. And I think that's important to do because one, we want to make sure that that medical student is set up for success and they're walking into a whole different culture, a sovereign area, if you will, um, to prepare them, but also have the clinic prepare the student as well. And I think when we work collaboratively like that, um, we find that that's successful for everyone involved. And now back to Grace McPhail. We put her on the spot and asked if, after she's finished her four years of medical school and then her residency training after that, she thought about going back to Long Beach to practice. I struggle. I actually struggle with that a bit. Um, I, Having been in California for the past six years, um, it would be a, a, an interesting thing for me to move back to Long Beach. But um, every time I do go back, I am just reminded of the gift of community I mean, you really cannot go to the grocery store without seeing everyone you know. <laughs> um, good and bad. Good and bad. And, um, I mean, watching kids that I babysat graduate high school now and just and the same teachers that I was taught by are still teaching. And I think about what an amazing gift it would be to go back and um, to be there. I, I think that... Um, I at least would want to be there part-time because I do miss it. And she says it's a place where doctors are needed, native or not, just like many rural communities in the Northwest. The Washington Attorney General's office sued federal immigration agencies in December for arresting undocumented immigrants at county courthouses. The office cited 157 arrests of undocumented people on their way to court during the last two years. The effect of these arrests on community members in need of court services is hard to quantify. Northwest Public Broadcasting's Enrique Perez de la Rosa reports on one undocumented man's quest for a court date in Grant County. Nicolas is in the middle of a legal fight. Last fall, he was cited by Quincy police for allegedly providing alcohol to a minor, but he says he didn't do so. He's pleading not guilty and defending his clean record in court. Nicolas isn't his real name. We're protecting his identity because he's undocumented, and he doesn't want to get in trouble for speaking to the press. But this story isn't about his immigration status or his legal case, because just getting in front of a judge to get a court date assigned was a fight all on its own. Al principio... Nicolás thought about not going to court despite being required by law to do so because he was afraid of running into immigration authorities. He was willing to risk losing his driver's license or being arrested for skipping court. Going to court is a risky errand for some people in Grant County. That's because many in the community say they've seen immigration officers arresting undocumented people at the district court. It's part of a national trend that immigrant rights advocates say prevents people from participating in the justice system as defendants, plaintiffs, and witnesses. According to Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement, officers do make arrests in courthouses, and they don't consider courts to be sensitive locations like schools or churches, but they only arrest 
targeted and dangerous people. Advocates say that's untrue, and that ICE targets anyone they suspect of being undocumented, especially Spanish speakers. Nicolás says he tried to tell the officer who cited him all of this, the rumors he'd heard, the news he'd read. But the officer said he was sorry. Nicolás had to resolve this in court. Whether or not federal immigration authorities should be allowed to operate in or near courthouses is being contested in federal court. But for now, Nicolás has found a workaround to get to court without risk. The Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network, a coalition of immigrant rights advocates across the state, connects people afraid of running into immigration officers in state courts through a hotline with volunteers willing to accompany and advocate for them. It's a service that coordinator Brenda Rodriguez says has become necessary for many, including naturalized citizens, because they fear the color of their skin will make them targets. No one who, who is um, Caucasian or who has lighter skin has called our hotline and said, I've been questioned about my immigration status. I've been followed. I've been eavesdropped as I'm having a conversation with my public defender. Nicolás called the hotline. On the day of his arraignment, three volunteers drove from Wenatchee to meet him. A driver, a translator, and someone to record any encounter with ICE. The driver dropped Nicolás and the volunteers off as close to the courthouse steps as possible. The translator and videographer surrounded Nicolás on their way in, as if to smuggle him inside while other residents walked in and out. They went upstairs to a courtroom. Once past the security check, the group sat down alongside others waiting to go before the judge. Everyone else was there alone. Nicolás went before the judge and, in about a minute, got assigned a court date and a public defender. He's dismissed and he leaves, but not until the driver gives him and the volunteers the all-clear. They climb into the car and drive off. Thankful ICE was not there that day. In retrospect, it may seem like this courthouse accompaniment and the effort it took to organize was for naught. But Nicolas says, unlike others, it's necessary for him to feel safe going to court. Others go to court with ease. Not us, he says. We run the risk of being deported. I'm Enrique Pérez de la Rosa in Afreda. In recent months, California's biggest electric utility has been taking the unprecedented step of shutting off power to millions of people. The move is meant to prevent power equipment from sparking catastrophic wildfires. Jefferson Public Radio's Eric Newman reports on a renewable energy microgrid that's proving to be one solution to this ongoing problem. The Blue Lake Rancheria tribe lives just north of Eureka, California. Behind the tribe's casino and hotel, Jana Ganyan opens a chain-link fence. Inside are more than 1,500 solar panels slanted toward the noonday sun. We're up, we're up just a little on a little platform that can oversee most of the array. And Ganyan is the sustainability again, director with the Blue Lake Rancheria tribe. This is the view that I like the best. Ganyan helped build this solar microgrid as part of the tribe's goal to have climate-resilient infrastructure and to be ready for earthquakes and tsunamis. But then, beginning in October, it became useful in a whole new way. The utility, Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, shut off power to more than 30 counties in central and northern California on October 9th. We had um, probably 30 to 45-minute gas lines, people that were fueling up vehicles, but also their home generators. That continued basically for the duration of the 28-hour outage. 
As one of the only gas stations with power, they gave diesel to United Indian Health Services to refrigerate their medications and to the Mad River Fish Hatchery to keep their fish alive. The local newspaper used a hotel conference room. Area residents stopped by to charge their cell phones. They estimate that on that day, more than 10,000 nearby residents came to the reservation for gas and supplies. Ryan Derby is the emergency services manager for Humboldt County. He says they'd been warned about these shutoffs, but didn't know they were happening until that day. So our entire planning model you know, for the last 18 months got thrown out the window. Suddenly, Humboldt, a county of 136,000 people, was in the dark. Humboldt County prides itself on being resilient, uh, but I think in light of these public safety power shutoffs, we realized how dependent we really are on electricity. The county focused on people who relied on medical devices like respirators or oxygen tanks. At the rancheria, Anita Huff was directing emergency services for people with critical medical needs. We had eight people in here who could not have lived without electricity, so we saved eight lives. The tribe built the microgrid with help from the Schatz Energy Research Center at Humboldt State University. Dave Carter was the lead technical engineer. Microgrids are very complex and in, their, in some ways they're kind of like snowflakes where there's no two of them are the same because it depends on where you are on the grid and what your facility is. Microgrids keep the energy flowing to customers even after disconnecting from the overall power grid. The Blue Lake microgrid goes into island mode and a large Tesla battery system balances energy supply and demand. By comparison, conventional solar arrays have to automatically shut down during outages so they don't electrocute power line workers. Microgrids do come at a cost. This one was $6.3 million. Carter says in spite of the upfront price, communities should consider what it's worth to stay in control during a natural disaster. The extreme case would be like for your medical device to stop working, you know. The value of the power that microgrid can provide when the rest of the county's de-energized is, is, is high. Jana Ganyan with the Blue Lake Rancheria says with future electricity shutoffs, rural communities need to be especially resilient. And that's true for reservations as well. Many, many tribal nations are located at the end of the line in terms of the electricity grid. They may have no power, they may have poor quality power, and microgrids are a way to just do an end run around all of that. Last month, PG&E announced it's soliciting bids to build 20 new microgrids near utility substations that could be affected by future power shutoffs. They're hoping to have them running by next fall, the season with high winds and extreme fire risk. I'm Eric Newman reporting. Inland Journalist Spokane Public Radio's public affairs radio program and podcast. You can hear our past programs at the SPR website and subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or Google Play. Send your comments and story ideas to inlandjournal at kpbx.org. Thank you for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.